Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today is David Patel. He's a Senior Research Fellow at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. David, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Mark. So... You've been doing a lot of research lately on this question of Sykes-Picot, the impact of ISIS, the durability of the Middle Eastern state system. So tell us a little bit about what you've been looking at and why. Well, for the past decade, because of state weakness in Iraq and since the Arab Spring in Syria, there's been a lot of discussion about the permanence of the current borders of the Middle East. And this really hit a crescendo this past May. This May, past May was the 100th anniversary of Sykes-Picot and suddenly had a lot of people reimagining what the borders of the Middle East look like. And people, at least in the West, and I'll, this is one of the key arguments I'll make today, is that it was people in the West doing this, reimagining how the Middle East might be ripe for a reorganization. And you saw this. The, the New York Times had a, had a map, right, an article, where they imagined new countries emerging, including a country called, wait for it, Wahhabistan. You also saw this on the cover of The Atlantic a few years ago, accompanying a Jeffrey Goldberg piece on reimagining the borders of the Middle East after, after uh, Iraq. You saw this in a couple of other magazines and journals. And so there's this, there's this interest in what the borders of the Middle East look like, the legacy of Sykes-Picot, and if this really is a moment where the borders might be changing. And so what do you think about all that? Well, one thing I'll, I'll note is when Westerners talk about reimagining the borders of the Middle East, what they're thinking of are smaller states. They're thinking of large states breaking down into something that's, quote-unquote, more natural borders. And Which is the opposite of the traditional Arab nationalist idea of unifying states. Not just Arab nationalists. ISIS, right? We oftentimes talk about ISIS as al-Qaeda 3.0, with al-Qaeda central in Afghanistan, Pakistan being the original, al-Qaeda in Iraq, of course, the organization that became ISIS, as al-Qaeda 2.0, the more sectarian version. And ISIS as al-Qaeda 3.0. But in many ways, ISIS shares a lot of pan-Arab nationalist ideology. The way they talk about borders, the way they talk about wiping away the borders, and the way they talk about a lot of the, the problems in the region. So ISIS isn't a secessionist movement. It's not trying to break away from Iraq or from Syria. What it's trying to do is unify those, wipe away those borders. And ISIS talks about Sykes-Picot. They talk about the, the conspiracy of Sykes-Picot and famously released a couple of videos showing bulldozers burning, breaking down the, the, the berm, separating Iraq and Syria when they took the border in 2014. They have very stirring music as a almost centuries-old Arab man is, weeps as an ISIS soldier comes and comforts him and, and shows that we, we, we did this for you, right? The, the Arab nation and the larger Ummah. So the point I want to make is when Westerners look at the Middle East, they think of large states breaking up, usually into ethnic enclaves or sectarian enclaves, a Sunni state, an Alawite state, a Kurdish state or states, and somehow this is seen as more natural. When people in the region, especially Arabs, talk about it, they're not talking about states breaking up. When they talk about Sykes-Picot being changed or the borders being reimagined, they imagine aggregation, movement up. And again, that's not a new thing. Arabs have been talking about that since, since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Right? Your, your books talk a lot about 1958 and about the first Arab Cold War, where you had efforts to unify states. So I think we should be careful when we talk about reimagining the borders, if we're immediately thinking of borders as, as contractive or expansionary. Well, and, and 
the relationship between these old Arab nationalist ideas and then this idea of a Sunni caliphate or a, a, an Islamic caliphate, um, the, the, the imagined borders are quite different, and the imagined community that is being discussed isn't exactly the same. No, certainly, but obviously th th that idealized time, the golden age of the caliphate, that was always a really core part of Sunni Arab nationalism. I mean, certainly a lot of Arab nationalists were also Christians, but they look back on that time of the golden age, the first four Sunni caliphs, as a, as a golden age for, for Arabs, but also for Islam. So there's always been this kind of intermeshing. Now, which one's emphasized or not hasn't, hasn't been emphasized as much. I will say, though, on ISIS, there's an awful lot of work on ISIS that focuses on kind of their ideology and the millenarian approach. So Will McCant's book might, is, is the best on this. There's other people who say completely dismiss the ideology of ISIS. ISIS is more like a, is more like Mexican street gangs, if you want to understand it, drug gangs. And Juan Cole I might characterize as having that position. Not that many people are looking at the, 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 the Ba'athist and Arab nationalist legacies in ISIS. Some people, including myself, have written on uh, uh, former Ba'athists being the, the mid-level cadres of ISIS's organizational form. But as far as I know, no one's really done good work, more than just a comment here or there, looking at the legacy of Ba'athist ideology and how they conceptualized borders in Sykes-Picot and the extent to which that shaped ISIS's uh, discourse. Now, you started off by talking about this idea of the natural unit of a political organization. And I, I think you're onto something there, this notion that the smaller state associated with the ethnic group has this resonance with Western scholars. Why don't you think that that, uh, that, that applies in the same way uh, in the Middle East? Why do you think they have these divergent ideas about natural political community? Well, you know, historically in the Middle East, the territorial nation-state was a form of social organization that was brought to the region, like it was brought to many regions by the West, and it was brought at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, at the Ottoman Empire, groups were organized by religious groups, by, by millets, not as territorial areas. There were wilayats, there were provinces, but those provinces' borders often changed. So I'll, I'll give you an example. It's really, really common to hear people learn a little bit of history of Iraq and then say, Iraq, the state of Iraq was cobbled together by the British from three Ottoman provinces. It's true. There was a southern province, a middle province, and a northern province. They had existed from 1884 until 1914 for 30 years. The problem is the Ottomans had been in Iraq for 400 years. Sometimes the Ottomans administered Iraq as one province, sometimes as five provinces, sometimes as a different three provinces. So there, there, there was never three provinces that were the natural territorial tripart division of the area that we now call Iraq. Historically it was Al Jazeera, the land between the two rivers, and then the desert area, Al Iraq. But in, instead, we had this image that there were three provinces in the Ottomans. But even, be, even though there were for 30 years, it wasn't a Sunni province, a Shia province, and a Kurdish province. That southern province in the Ottomans was just the southern three most provinces of Iraq today. It didn't include the shrine cities, right? those Shia shrine cities that are central to, to Shia ideology and, and, and identity. Those are part of the northern province of Baghdad. And the northern, I mean the central province that we'd call Baghdad, and the northern province was not a Kurdish majority province. All three were dominated by a Sunni Ottoman elite, so there, there was no, there there was no Shia area, Sunni area, and Kurdish area that had ever governed themselves at, at any given time, and I think this is the problem that a lot of Westerners, we have 
when I say we, a lot of our diplomats and military officials have experience in the Balkans. And they come to the Middle East oftentimes bringing a Balkan understanding of how to solve these problems. They, they remember the breakup of Yugoslavia, and they're applying that model to, to Syria and Iraq. This is most egregious in Iraq. Read Chris Hill's memoirs, right? Chris Hill's memoirs, when he talks about Iraq, he's almost trying to identify who are, which groups in Iraq are the Serbs, which groups in Iraq are the Croats, which group in Iraq are the, are, are the Bosnian Muslims. And he's thinking in those terms explicitly. But a lot of our leaders, I think, bring those perspectives to the region, that there are more natural states that can emerge. And what I'm saying is that there's, there's no historical legacy for that. There are no segmentary boundaries. There's no, there's no shared, very rarely are there shared myths and symbols that can be used to create the basis of a new na a community, a, a national community or identity. Well, but let's go with that for a second, because, you know, everybody talks about how artificial these states are, but I mean, most of them, I mean, they've existed now for a hundred years. Yeah. And in that time, you've seen the consolidation of modern states, educational systems, national media, military service. Why would we expect that these, like, long historical legacies are more important than a hundred years of the cultivation of national identity and, and central states. Absolutely, I think that's a great point. Uh, we look back at these things that existed 100 years ago and think that somehow they persevered. And I, I think the reason why we do is, perhaps I'm heavily too influenced by, by Lisa Anderson on this, but th this territorial nation-state was brought to the region 80 to 100 years ago. And there were things, ways of social organization, political organization that existed before the state families, things that we call tribes, uh, religious organizations, unions, right, guilds, those things survived under the state. They changed. They take, took on different permutations. Some of them came to uh, be political parties. Some of them came to be just exist under the state or under, with, hide from the state's view. But now that state structures have weakened in some places, they're emerging back to play roles that they did before. They've changed, they're not the same things, but we see them and somehow think that they're somehow more permanent or resonant than the states were without realizing they, they've existed all along. They've always been there. That's, that's not unique. I mean, in India, a lot of political parties are formed around, around caste lines, for example, or linguistic lines. And you've seen some of these things emerge and not become the state, but coexist with the state. I mean, Saudi Arabia, it's, it's a country named after a family. Right? There's only two countries in the world today named after the current ruling family, right? The other one's uh, 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 Liechtenstein, I believe, right? Jordan's the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, but if you ask a Jordanian, where are you from? I'm Jordanian. It's the name of a river. If you ask somebody from Saudi Arabia, they identify themselves as Saudi, a member of a family. So, the, and, and loyalty to the, to the state, to the regime, means loyalty to this family. And they, they would describe themselves as a giant family. And so you, you see how these forms of social organization existed under the state. We're just seeing them play a larger role in people's lives today. So we think that those states somehow never had any meaning to begin with. Which I think is an inaccuracy. One of, my, one of my favorite papers of yours is about all the states that died and all the states which disappear from our memory and from, and from the map. And so what's your favorite of the failed states or dead states which uh, used to roam the Middle East and now uh, no longer exist? So this, this paper is part of a larger project where I'm looking at the borders of the Middle East and the map of the Middle East. And we oftentimes have this idea that the, the map of the Middle East was laid down by Europeans at one point in time. There's, there's a great episode of the... Of, uh, the comedy show of uh, um, 
John Stewart's show on Comedy Central where um, John Oliver is dressed up as Sir Archibald Mapsalot the Third. This is a couple of years ago, and he's just drawing maps, uh, drawing lines in the maps of the Middle East, and he says, uh, talking to John Stewart, there's. John, there's nothing the Arab respects more than a strong white hand drawing straight lines between their ridiculous tribal allegiances. That's kind of the image that we have of the Middle East, and it's not just held by comedians on Comedy Central. You, you read some of the classic works in Middle East history, and you see that. You certainly look, look at the discourse and some things coming out of think tanks nowadays, and they, they have this image. The map of the Middle East wasn't set down at Sykes-Picot or in any time in the 1920s. It emerged over time gradually through a lot of different processes. It was, it was very contingent, right? There were a lot of states that existed, sometimes for a blink in the eye, sometimes for uh, uh, several years, and then disappeared from the map. And so what I'm doing is looking at a lot of those states that died, because, and this is a point Chuck Chilly, the sociologist, made years ago, if you want to understand state building, you can't only look at states that survived, that's selecting on the dependent variable. You can't just compare France and Britain. You also need to look at states that died, that disappeared. So to understand Kuwait, you can't just compare Kuwait to other states in the Gulf that survived. You've got to look at other states that are similar to it, that died. So the, the, uh, the state of Hatay, right, which was a part of Syria, became independent, and then was gobbled up by Turkey in the 1930s. That would be a nice example. But there's lots of others. The Kingdom of Hejaz, the Republic of Mahabad, which was a Kurdish state in, uh, in Iran, uh, uh, Tangier. It's not obvious to me why the city-state of Tangier, which is currently in, in Morocco, why it isn't Singapore today. So I'm interested in those sorts of questions. Uh, but in, in terms of my favorite, I, I, I think Hatay is a fun one. Uh, so is Ras al-Khaimah. This, this was one of the emirates of the UAE, which did not join the UAE when it was first created and stayed in, tried to be independent briefly. It actually applied for membership in the Arab League uh, and helped launch a coup in a neighboring emirate. Uh, fascinating little stories that, that sound just like stories, but when put together and seen as a class of things, failed states, it allows us to start asking questions about why did some states die, other states not survive? What was the role of local actors in creating these states? What was the role of uh, colonial powers or, or great powers in deciding which states survived, which ones didn't? In terms of really consequential state deaths, I'd have to go with Kingdom of the Hejaz Absolutely. as one of the great counterfactuals of what the Middle East might look like if, if the Hejaz had survived as an independent state. And it, it, there's some maps of the Middle East where they reimagine the kingdom of the Hejaz emerging. And there's certainly really nice work looking at uh, Hejazi identity. So there's a few books that have come out recently. And my sense is Saudi Arabia doesn't mind this sort of histor historiography, looking at the histories of these. And the Hejaz is, isn't the only one that ended up being conquered by Najd to form the Saudi state uh, in a process that looks in many ways extremely similar to the state formation process in Europe. Saudi Arabia might be the one state in the Middle East which did follow a Western trajectory of uh, a, a ruler conquering areas, and the extent to which he could conquer became the state. So I, I, I was harsh on Saudi Arabia a little bit earlier, but in some ways it matches the Western model of an expansionistic, endogenous process of state formation. But the question is, to what extent do those memories persevere? Do people remember them? Or can they be uh, reimagined and, 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 and brought back up to make claims for autonomy or for independence? We're starting to see this. We're seeing it a little bit in, 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 uh, in Libya, for example, where the eastern province, uh, Barca, or the Emirate of Serenica, the symbols of it, the connection with the, uh, the, 
uh, Senussi dynasty. It's being reused. The flag is being rediscovered. Same with the Republic of Tripolitania in Libya. They're, they haven't been used yet to make independence claims, but they are being used to make claims for regional autonomy and to make claims about what period in Libya's history should they look to to for, for constitutional formation and, and, and resource sharing. And they're obviously picking an era which was much more beneficial to the East than the later uh, uh, distributions of power. So go back to where we started. Go back to ISIS. You know, at what point would you say that we could begin talking about ISIS as a state that lives or dies? How long would it have to survive in its current form to be something which is just an historical footnote versus something which has the kinds of roots that you're talking about here? You know, so people don't know what to do with ISIS and how, what to call it now. And, and obviously calling it a state, even if it dies and you call it a failed state, it's, it's a political statement. But it's been there for three years. It's governed the lives of, who knows, some people say there's 10 million people living in the, who lived under the Islamic State at its peak. I find that hard to countenance with the refugee flows we know. I would say probably it was closer to 3 to 5 million people. But there's people who've lived in Raqqa and in Mosul for several years under the Islamic State. It has governed these areas. It has a, you can travel from one end of the Islamic State to the other with a piece of paper that says, this person has permission to transport agricultural goods. Those are state-like features, and it survived for quite a long time. So it, it, it's claimed autonomy. It's claimed independence. As far as I know, it hasn't, ha it hasn't applied for a membership in the Organization of Islamic Unity or certainly the Arab League or UN. Um, so it, 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 we wouldn't call it a... By some definitions, it wouldn't be a state. It hasn't sought to join the international system. But... If it disappears, I think it'd have to be considered one of these failed states. So it would go down with the Kingdom of the Hejaz as something that might have been? Yes, but you're assuming that it will be, it'll disappear. Who knows? It might be there for, uh, for a significant time going forward. All right. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, David Patel, uh, Brandeis University, the Crown Center for Middle Eastern Studies. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.